You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. So I want to begin by talking about democracy. So in America, we understand that true democracy is linked to having both free press and the freedom to speak. And so I want to ask you to think about this as it pertains to Kenya. What does democracy look like there? And what is your responsibility as a deputy president to make sure it happens? Well, um... To be fair to ourselves, maybe sometimes we judge ourselves by very high standards. Mm -hmm. But to be fair to ourselves, Kenya is a robust democratic country um, with a, a very progressive constitution that builds into it um, the Bill of Rights that is progressive and that uh, um, is um, robust in its provisions so that uh, there wouldn't be a lacuna for anybody to box people into a straight jacket and uh, expect people to speak only in a certain, in a certain manner. But um, that be as it may, you wouldn't uh, have um, people who would want to play games mm -hmm. with the rights of others to decide, to make independent decisions and to um, uh, make choices that they believe um, are the correct choices. So um, regular elections is part of our uh, um, uh, part of our forte, we uh, we will be having an, an, uh, elections in the next uh, five months, in 9th of August to be exact, and people of Kenya will make choices. And uh, the only maybe concern that many Kenyans um, have is the intrusion by agencies to try and manipulate um, decisions of people at different levels. Uh, and, and, and the good thing is that the people of Kenya have stood very firm as against any attempts to uh, make decisions on their behalf. Mm -hmm. There is a huge push, pushback, let me say, by citizens of Kenya uh, against any attempt to choreograph um, the next dispensation in Kenya. And uh, there is a lot of blackmail, intimidation, mm -hmm. um, use of uh, um, criminal justice system to intimidate leaders, to blackmail leaders, to uh, ask people to uh, vote in a certain way. 
but Kenya being a very progressive and, and, and having practiced democracy for um, a long while, they've, they've stood up to uh, this blackmail and, and threats and, and intimidation. And as a leader in Kenya, I have taken the position that um, uh, every citizen, and, and, and I have gone all out to protect and to speak against any attempts to try and uh, um, straight jacket people into predetermined outcomes. I am very confident that um, uh, the people of Kenya will prevail, uh, that blackmail and intimidation will not prevail, and that Kenyans will make independent uh, choices. Uh, we would have expected uh, that we would be able to do this without all the baggage of blackmail and intimidation that is going on at the moment. But unfortunately, that's where we are. And um, uh, in my position, I, I will do the best I can mm -hmm. to make sure that I protect the right of every citizen to make independent choices, even if those choices are not necessarily in my favor. So to move into talking about what you have called as your mantra, this idea of the bottom-up economy, yes. that it's about pouring the money and the resources into the people, the hustlers, I like that term as someone who lives in Baltimore, the hustlers to be able to fend for themselves, fight for themselves, but also make money to take care of their families. So can you talk more about this notion of the bottom-up economy, particularly coming out of COVID, when I know your economy was hit just like everybody else, how are you going to revitalize the economy? How can we help the hustlers? which in a lot of cases is women working at kiosk stands. How do we help them to become independent financially in the midst of what's going on? Um, I think the bottom-up economic model is informed by uh, the situation that we're in in Kenya. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a, 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 a plan um, when we came into office first term, 2013 to 2017, that worked. You know, we had a, a, a good plan on how to invest in a foundation. Foundation being infrastructure. We built a 700 kilometer railway line, modern railway line. We built 10,000 kilometers of paved road, tarmac road. Uh, electricity generation and uh, distribution was a major problem. So we did connect between, uh, from about 2 million, 2.3 million people. We are now at almost 8.5 million households connected to electricity. And we needed to do more in the space of training, especially skills, competencies. And we have built about 150 new technical training colleges around the country and um, increased the number of um, uh, skilled, trained personnel out of the colleges from uh, 
an average of 90,000 graduates every year. We're now doing half a million graduates every year. That was the foundation. And um, the real challenge, and that's why we are talking about bottom up. Mm -hmm. The real challenge now is how to leverage on the foundation that we have built to do social justice. We have close to 4 million young people who have no jobs. Job creation has to be deliberate. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, under the bottom-up economic plan, we are deliberate about investing in infrastructure that is labor-intensive, that deliberately creates jobs so that we can begin the process of uh, recruiting the four million graduates mm -hmm. out of high school, uh, college, university, uh, and, and bring them into the job market. The second item is how to um, uh, graduate the people in the space of micro, small, and medium enterprise, the ones you've talked about. Mm -hmm. We have close to about 15 million people who are in that micro, small, medium enterprise category, what you call the hustlers, right? right? How do we graduate them to the middle class? How do we increase their earnings from one, two dollars a day to five, six dollars a day, you know? So deliberate strategy of financing, creating the infrastructure for them to do business, and having the legal environment for the, to protect their enterprises. We have in Kenya a lot of predatory lenders uh, because many of these micro, small, medium entrepreneurs do not have access to credit. Mm -hmm. They do not have security. They do not have a financial track record. So you will find that while huge corporates pay six, seven, ten percent for credit a year, these micro, small, medium entrepreneurs pay between two thousand and three thousand percent a year. Wow. That's how serious. That's how serious it is. And because of uh, the punitive, predatory lenders, today we have 14 million Kenyans on a credit reference bureau, wow. meaning mm -hmm. they have defaulted. Right. 14 million Kenyans is actually half the working population. That, that, that's really that's serious. That's really serious. If you have half your working population blacklisted as uh, uncreditworthy, right, that tells you there is a structural financial problem which we need to fix. And just by fixing that environment, making sure that we build the necessary infrastructure to support the SMEs, 
ensure that uh, there is a legal regime that protects their business. And thirdly, making sure that you structure a financial um, instrument that makes sure that these people have access to credit. We can increase the earnings of these 15 odd million hustlers, which is really half our population. We can graduate them um, progressively into, into, the next, into the next level. And many of these people will do many things from cottage industry, agro-processing, value addition, and the whole of that space. Many of them, for example, are, um, are, are farmers, you know, who they are producing a liter or two of milk. The same cow with a little support can triple uh, their productivity just by increasing the productivity of our farmers or dairy farmers, for example, or increasing the uh, productivity of coffee or tea or uh, all the other crops, we can actually triple or quadruple the fortunes of a whole array of Kenyans. And, and that's, that's the direction we're facing when we talk about uh, the bottom up. So making sure that we have decent jobs, making sure that we build the capacity to support the micro, small and medium, the people at the bottom of the, of the, of the, of the pyramid. And our approach also is how to get more people on health insurance. Many of the people who are at the bottom of the pyramid cannot go to hospital because they do not have the means. Many of them wait because they, they have to make a decision as to whether they want to go to hospital and because they don't have money. As they wait, their condition deteriorates. And maybe a condition that would have uh, been uh, done with, with a dollar or two becomes $10,000, merely because a decision was not made in good time. And so we have uh, recently changed the law so that we can graduate uh, contributions and make sure that um, contributions are based on incomes. Initially, contributions were predetermined, but we're now changing the law so that mm -hmm. contributions to host, uh, in, uh, health insurance is graduated with incomes. The people at the bottom of the pyramid will, place, will pay slightly less. The people at the top of the pyramid pay slightly more. That is the norm. That, that is uh, what happens worldwide. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that, we are confident that the people at the bottom of the pyramid will have greater access because it will become cheaper for them, for the people at the bottom of the pyramid. And with the people at the top of the pyramid paying more, 
we can carry a lot more people who are indigent. At the moment, we are paying health insurance as government for about a million and a half people. We believe that under the new arrangement that we are working on, the bottom up, we should be able to take care of up to four, between four and five million people. We should be able to be able to carry them as government. And that way, we can make um, health coverage universal. That's really where we're going. We want to make it universal so that every citizen in our country can have access to, to, to health care. So this is, in a nutshell, the, the bottom-up economic model. Create jobs, create opportunities for business, agro-processing, agriculture, value addition, all of that space, and make sure that we have uh, universal health coverage and, and access to health for every citizen, irrespective of their status, financial status, that is. Well, thank you for that. When I, when I think about Kenya and when I visited there, coming from America, some of our greatest struggles are around the issue of race. I mean, we, we have been fighting about it. We talk about it all the time. We're trying to get beyond racism. So when I lived in Nairobi, I was like, well, I'm in Wakanda, that there is no issue around race. Everybody from the president down to the person working in the hotel looks like me, <laughs> except you have other struggles there, whether it's ethnic conflict or around the area of religion. You mentioned that peace is not just the absence of war. And to carry that out, then we see it as a presence of justice. So thinking about Kenya in that light, what does justice look like for people where everybody looks the same, so it's not race, but something else is keeping people behind in that country? That's really the struggle I'm talking about. The struggle is about the financial status of people. You know, people, are, people want a decent living. They want a living wage. They want to go to hospital. They want their kids to go to school. So that's the struggle in there. Well, there is... Um, ethnicity is part of that equation. But progressively, mm. when you look at um, uh, the political formations that are there in Kenya, uh, we had the largest party, ruling party, that had everybody. You know, I think a majority of ethnicities were on board. Unfortunately, um, we lost the, that, the, the opportunity for that party because of mismanagement and because of incompetence. The inability to manage a national political outfit. Mm. And we have had to go out of our way, again, to assemble um, a national political party because the answer, in our opinion, to ethnicity is to have a national political formation. Um, at the moment, we have managed to weave together a large political party, and we have also managed to um, work with 
other partners who share with us the same ideology. The formation that we're in at the moment is a formation of three political parties um, that have come together to try and bring the country together uh, and to um, minimize the ethnicity challenge in our politics. Our competitors, unfortunately, have gone the other way. They've gone to create and sponsor little political parties in every ethnic community and in every corner, which in our very honest opinion is a very uh, dangerous engagement. But um, we are very confident that we will prevail because the people of Kenya understand full well the challenge that comes with ethnicization of politics in our nation. We've, 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 we've learned the difficult lessons of ethnic politics. And the people of Kenya are acutely aware to the detrimental effects of um, the ethnicization of our politics. And that's why our competitors on one end are struggling to try and assemble something uh, that's not coming together. And uh, it's because the people of Kenya have resisted the attempt to balkanize the country and to create little ethnicities all over in our political space. So if you do not have the challenge of race, human beings have uh, the nudge to go and create other, right. other, other uh, you know, uh, fractures, you know, the, just to fracture society for whatever other reason. But I, I am very confident that um, uh, the team that we belong to has managed to weave together a national political movement that, is, that has the capacity to bring the whole country together. Uh, that's not to say that it's going to be a walk in the park. It requires some <laughs> uh, thinking, some hard work, and we, we're, we're putting it in there. Now, before we turn our attention to the audience, because we'd like to invite you to ask questions, I do have one more, which is very close to my heart. So I've been waiting uh, to ask you this question for many years. Okay. Um, because when I was in Kenya, I, I worked with women. <laughs> and the woman I lived with was a woman who did not, who was unable to see. We were in the Shamundu areas, and she could not see. She was born blind. And she would tell me all the time, coming from America, you move too fast, you can't see it all. She said, I can see better than you, and I've never seen anything. She used to talk to me about standing still. And she said that one of the things that you did in Nairobi is you learned how to stand still and how to do the work where you were at that moment. Given that today is the first day of Women's History Month for us, and we're moving into International Women's Day. Can you talk about your plan to empower women who are standing right where they are, doing the work where they are at that moment? And for many of us from afar, they're the heart and soul of what's driving you forward. Maybe I could do this in, in three ways. Mm 
the bottom-up economic model is largely about women. I mean, the majority of the people at the bottom of the pyramid are women. A majority of the hustlers are women. Mm -hmm. um, um, so our, our, our focus on the economy is really largely maybe 60% focus on women. Um, we are deliberate in our political organization about women and their participation. And we believe that uh, we are the poorer without women participation. So we are deliberate about it. Um, we make it that much more easy for women to be part of the political equation. Um, we try as much as possible to build the capacity of women to take their rightful place at the table. Uh, and for example, I think we will be the political formation that will field the most women in the most serious positions. Mm. And, and that's not by default. It is, it is purposeful. It's by design. Because we believe that uh, women have not just a role to play, but their role is critical to, to, the, to the progress of um, our achievements. You know, whatever, we will achieve things more, better, faster, with the participation of women. Um, the law is also being progressively fashioned to make it impossible to continue the age-old tradition of women coming, playing second fiddle. We, we, the, the law makes it now mandatory. Our political uh, party formations make it mandatory. And, uh, and I, I am very confident that um, the future holds better things for the women folk in our nation. Very nice. We wanted to open it up. Thank you. So Thank you. So we wanted to open it up for questions from the audience. I believe that there might be a microphone. There's one set up over here. And if you want to make a line to my right, there's one set up. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. There's one on each side. So if you line up, I will call on you and recognize you, ask you for your question. Uh, I know in this age, we all have a dissertation. So if we can keep our questions short, we would appreciate it to give our deputy president time to sure, expand I'll on the go question. Real, really fast. First, uh, Jumbo. Booney. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Haki, Haki Ami, uh, the Success Scholar. I'm from Baltimore. I am an African-American. Um, I did spend one night in uh, Nairobi wow. <laughs> on my way to Tanzania, but uh, I wanted to be really quick. Uh, uh, I've done, first, I'm uh, an author as well. I write for the National Black Union newspaper. But today, uh, recently, two years ago, we had a conference in uh, Tanzania as well as last year in South Africa and now we have the opportunity to bring this conference to Kenya but my question 
is in terms of the East African Confederation, the six African countries, Burundi, what is it, uh, Tanzania, Uganda, you know, uh, if you can speak to how that plays in terms of your vision and, and where, because uh, I believe it's significant uh, for African uh, freedom. And so, Yuhuru. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, discussing the economy without a discussion about ESC and, uh, and the EFTA would not be doing justice to the discussion on the economy. Um, the East African Confederation or East African community that now has a population, maybe 170 million, um, is that trading partnership that has evolved over time. I think we can now confidently say it's the most progressive uh, trading block uh, in the whole continent. I think the intra-trade within the East African community states now is at close to 20%, I think 18 to 20%, which is the highest in the continent for any block. Um, and, and Kenya is at the, at the center of it. We did sign uh, into, the East, uh, into the Africa continental free trade area that now brings the whole continent, a billion people, maybe a billion point two, into the metrics. And already that has been signed, ratified, and the investor community can leverage and take advantage of uh, these trading blocks from Kenya or from any other uh, of, the, of the countries in East Africa. But Kenya is the natural leader and the, and the center of uh, gravity, if you may, for the, for the ESC. Um, I think the, the, if, you, if, you, if you check the passports of many of the people here with me, they are East African passports. That's how far we've gone. They, they, they no longer hold Kenyan passports. These are East African community passports. So telling you that the progress in, in bringing seamless uh, uh, action between the, the states in ESC is, is, has progressed quite, quite, uh, quite far. And um, uh, it's an interesting uh, proposition for any investor uh, looking at the possibilities and the opportunities, not just in East Africa, but in the continent of Africa. Thank you. We'll come over here next, Dr. Schmidt. Okay, thank you very much. Um, um, I think that w with the issue of uh, bribery and intimidation and corruption that you raised, that we as Americans should be first, the first to acknowledge that this happens in countries around the world. Um, our own democracy is being shaken um, very severely on a daily basis. So uh, this isn't a matter of throwing stones at others only, but at acknowledging our own 
our own faults in these areas as well. But um, I'm sure you're well aware of the um, controversy surrounding the, the violence after the elections in Kenya in 2007. And those of us who read the limited news that we get about Africa in this country are aware that the International Criminal Court dropped charges against you um, that had implicated you in what was charged to be crimes against humanity um, um, in that violence. And I won't go into detail about that, but the charges were dropped. But one of the judges made a, a, um, a point of saying that didn't mean that you'd been acquitted, but rather that the court no longer had sufficient evidence to continue the case because of bribery and witness intimidation. And um, obviously these are serious charges. It's a difficult question to tackle. But I'm wondering if you could just respond to that issue and from your perspective, uh, what, what is going on there? Thank you. Thank you very much. It's not, it's not a difficult question. Uh, because uh, the facts are very clear. The 2007-2008 incident was a really unfortunate incident for our country. And um, the claims of bribery, intimidation, um, were on all sides. Um, there are those who accuse the prosecution of bribery and intimidation. There are those who accuse uh, the defense of bribery and intimidation. Um, the positive side to this is that we were able to weather the storm as a nation and to prove that um, what was considered a precipice actually gave birth to a new nation. That the so-called protagonists came together and actually formed a government together. And it's given us 10 years of solid progress and a peaceful country. So a lot of this have uh, been a foundation of learning the, the tragedy of ethnicization that leads to violence. And so we have learned lessons from that kind of, uh, that kind of politics. And that is why you hear me say, we must not walk back to blackmail, threats, intimidation in our politics that took us to um, uh, the precipice that our country almost became in 2007-2008. We would be the biggest fools not to learn 
from the mistakes of our past. And that's precisely why we do not think uh, anybody in our country would be attempting to repeat, so to speak, the mistakes of 2007-2008. Thank you. Yes. Hello. Um, my name is uh, Honorable Seven Bogo, but my votes did not meet to standard. I know the politicians here understand what I'm saying. I'm from Nakuru County. I'm privileged my senator is there. And uh, Your Excellency, I have this question. My question is mainly, are we going to vote the people of diaspora? And again, I need you to give me an assurance, because I know we are going to win this election, because I'm a UDA member. <laughs> I need you to give me an assurance that. I heard uh, the other time Honorable Sabina Shege saying that they will do something, stealing the votes. I will be so bitter when I'm working so hard bringing people from Pennsylvania to Washington to register as voters, and then at the end of the day, they come to steal our votes. So I just need your assurance, sir, that nobody is going to steal our votes, and you are going to work on that. Thank you so much. <laughs> On your first question, yes. Um, there is provision, and um, I think there are states and countries, and they keep increasing. The capacity of the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission is being built so that we can have more Kenyans in the diaspora voting. Uh, there will be opportunity for people in America to vote. I wish we could make it a lot more easier for them to vote. And I think progressively and going into the future, hopefully uh, when we form government in August, we will, have, we, will, we will have a diaspora ministry that can actually look into the issues of diaspora, their concerns, their voting rights, and all that. So yes, there will be opportunity for people in the diaspora to vote, not to the extent that uh, uh, everybody will, because it is limited by capacity and by extent to which that can happen. And I think not, not in every country uh, outside Kenya, I think there is a list of, I think, almost 10 countries where people can vote. But that's work in progress. I think there were three, four countries before. I think the, the IBC will continue building that capacity. On your second item as to whether the vote will be stolen, it's part of that recklessness that uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I was talking to, the, 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 the recklessness in uh, because you remember um, the events of 2007-2008 uh, were premised on a stolen election. And we keep, you know, uh, hearing this stolen election uh, narrative. And what we are asking is that every candidate in this election must commit 
that they will accept the outcome of the election. Mm. And if they query the outcome of the election, it should be um, using constitutionally stipulated mechanisms and not uh, pushing people to war. Uh, unfortunately, some of the candidates have never committed themselves to accept the outcome of an election, whatever election. But I hope this year we should be able to push them to, to that level. And finally, is to say that um, I am very confident from where I sit that no election will be stolen. Thank you. We have a question over here. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Karanja Gashusha, and I'm a um, journalist here in the US. I'm uh, actually a White House correspondent, so I'm usually directing my questions to uh, the White House. But it is a pleasure to direct my question to you, um, Mr. Deputy President, Karibu Sana. Uh, you spoke very fluently about bottom-up uh, economics and specifically about predatory lending practices. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that. But uh, on a uh, and I, I, I'm focused on economics, so it, uh, it was very uh, exciting to hear you. Um, but on a global level, there's also predatory economic practices, uh, particularly coming from uh, Western uh, countries, the United States, uh, uh, the EU. Um, we have the World Bank IMF uh, with uh, um, SAP, for example, structural adjustment programs, which prevent us from, um, uh, what is it called, like subsidizing farmers and, and stuff like that. Um, and I always hear about uh, American strategic interests, particularly from yeah, American leaders. I've never heard a Kenyan president talk about Kenyan strategic interests. And so uh, with regard to Kenyan strategic interests, is it in our interest, uh, when it is in our interest to work with other partners, be it Russia, be, be it China, uh, are we free to do that? Do we have the true freedom to do that? Um, and then I have, uh, it's a double barrel question, forgive me. Uh, with regard to American democracy, uh, Dr. K wouldn't be surprised to hear me say this. Uh, it has never really been uh, democratic. Uh, the Electoral College is not democratic. The Senate is not democratic. The gerrymandered Congress is not democratic. The partisan, openly partisan Supreme Court is not democratic. Uh, Europeans eradicated uh, smaller tribes, which is why they all speak French in, in France, for example, but there were actually other tribes, uh, as many as 14 in France. And so, but we have very different cultures where we have continued to maintain our diversity. So my question with regard to democracy is that, is Western-style democracy really suitable for us Africans? Should, should we not be looking at, you know, we are traditionally led by councils of elders, for example, should we not be looking at systems that are more suitable for our own, that are more resonant uh, for our own cultures, uh, that do not copy and paste systems that are not even working here in the West? Thank you. Um, and, and just to add, you know, a lot of uh, wars, uh, for example, are started uh, by, you know, yeah, I the do biggest want to step in and say Thank you so much. That was a wonderful question. Questions for you. And I know we don't have much time, so I just want to collapse it and ask <laughs> you if you could maybe pull together yep. both let, pieces of let what me, he's asking. Let me, yeah. I, I know it's quite a bunch. 
But let me say just two things to what that good gentleman has said. Uh, number one, Kenyan strategic interest is up to us, the people of Kenya, to push. We do not expect people to push our interests for us. So if American comes, if Americans come with American interests, we would be fools not to come with Kenyan interests mm. to the table. So um, uh, in any case, politics is a game of interest. You know, that is period. It's not who is your friend, it's not who is not your friend. It's your interest, you push your interest. Do we have the latitude and the space, permission uh, to work with others? We need nobody's permission to work with China. We need nobody's permission to work with any person. And we need no permission to work with the US. So we work with the US when it is in the strategic interest of Kenya to work with the US. We work with the next, uh, uh, with the EU when it is our strategic interest to work with the EU. And we work with China when it is a uh, strategic interest for us to, with, uh, to work with China. All we must take care of is finally, what is the Kenyan interest in there? And it is for us, the people of Kenya, to determine what our interests are. It's not necessarily what the Chinese want, or the British want, or the Americans want. That's theirs. We have our own interests, and uh, we're a democratic country, and we can make democratic choices. And finally, on the matter as to whether um, uh, the Western democracy uh, works. I'm reminded that uh, democracy is, is, I think it's a, it's a lesson in arts. Democracy is the worst form of government, but nothing better has been found. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we'll just have to live with it. Well, when we find a different one that's better than this, fine. I, I guess we will we'll try that one. But for now, this is what works. Thank you. Before we go on, we only have time for two more questions. So I do want to step in and request that the students of Loyola University who are in line, if they could move to the front. I see Christian over here. I see a student. If our students can come forward, because part of our conversation tonight is we want to hear from our students as well. So let's leave the final space and questions, Deputy President of Republican, that's Kenya, if that's okay with you, for our students, because I want to hear what, what the future has to say. We'll start over here. Hi. Um, and what year are you so we'll know? I'm a junior here at Loyola. Um, after researching you a bit, I found that your doctoral thesis focused on the impact of human activities on the environmental quality of riparian ecosystems. And yet, as a bottom-up billionaire, it is no doubt that you have intimately engaged with the forms of, cap the forms of exploitation necess necessitated by capitalism. My first question is, is it possible for one to be empathically aware of the insidious nature of our human activity on natural ecosystems while remaining an active member of the capitalist system that inflicts itself most significantly on the earth? And my second question, when considering Kenyan economic interests, 
Will you consider the many Kenyans that are still suffering as a result of the extreme levels of poverty necessitated by the disproportionate wealth distribution found in capitalist nations? Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, um, you have categorized me as a capitalist. I don't know. I don't know where you found. <laughs> I don't know where you found that. But uh, yes, uh, I. I have my background in um, in matters environment, and I'm very keen and clear about. Uh, matters environment. In fact, in my office, I have a whole directorate to deal with matters environment. And in fact, in my delegation, I have an expert in climate change. And uh, um, the impact of uh, is right there, uh, Dr. Ali. Uh, and and we, 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 we are not we're not just speaking about matters uh, environment in books and lectures and classrooms. We, we put policy to it to make sure that um, whatever impact human activity um, on our environment, how do we mitigate? How do we uh, ensure that this environment is available not just to us, but to the next generation. And on your second question, which uh, has escaped my mind. Well, it's the ways in which how do we take into account the people who are suffering in Kenya, which I believe you talked a lot about at the yes, top yes. when you were looking about, at the about bottom the economy, economy yeah. and trying to deal with that, the fact that, that so that's many women the bottom are bottom-up economic model mm -hmm. is exactly to address what, uh, what your concerns were. And then for our last question, we have another student from Loyola University. Hello, my name is Sienna. I'm a junior here at Loyola. Um, thank you, Your Excellency, for coming. So my question relates to your answer from Dr. Whitehead's answer, um, question about women. 65% of the consumer goods in Kenya are catered towards women, and women are very important into the economy. And with the worldwide stigma of well, women being in at home and not participating in political and economic issues and decisions, I was wondering what steps need to be implemented or taken for women to participate. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, it, it's, it, it cuts both ways, you know. Um, there is a, a progressive push. You know, we, we have affirmative, we have, for example, on one end, we have affirmative action uh, seats. In Kenya, we have 46 seats that only women can compete for. Mm -hmm. yeah. 47, sorry. 47. 47. Um, those are affirmative action seats. It's, it's part of the drive to make sure that whether they like it or not, women will be in parliament. <laughs> If, even mm. if the women themselves don't want. <laughs> assume, assume, <laughs> assume, assuming that, that they are not interested. So they have no choice but to come into the fray and compete for those seats. That, that's on the one end. On the other end, we have, um, of course, very aggressive, very outgoing, 
um, very competent uh, women competing with men in, in all the other seats. And for the record, for the first time in Kenya, for example, we had the first three senators uh, elected competing with men, and, and, and one of them is in, in, in the room. Uh, maybe we should clap for her, that lady there. Yeah. And hopefully uh, she's going to be governor. For the first time again, we had uh, three women elected as governors in the last election in 2017. And fortunately, again, one of them is in the room. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, elect, elected for the first time as, as, as governor, a position that women have never held. So there, there is uh, the push from uh, one end, and there is the pull from the other end. So uh, again, just to answer your question, um, Women must do something about it, but society must also do something about it to get women into leadership. The women themselves must push their way, and society must also give way for women to be at the table. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember, words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history, so use yours wisely.